I don't remember my mother. I don't remember who taught me to tell time, tie my shoe, who taught me to walk, who, who helped me utter my first word. I have no memory of that or no experience of that that I can recall. Regina Louise grew up in the foster care system. From age 12 to 19, she lived in around 30 different foster homes. She suffered a lot of abuse from the people who were supposed to care for her. And because of that, some of her memories of childhood are vague and fragmented. And she didn't remember a lot of them until her late 30s, when she started to write a book about her life. And I had to rely on memory in order to write. I realized, wow, there are no concrete examples or experiences that I have that are consistent, just these little chunks and pieces. In 2003, Regina put those pieces together. She wrote a memoir about her journey through foster care and about her friendship with a woman who changed her life. But the details of Regina's story of abuse and neglect were harrowing. Some of it was almost surreal, and that was a problem. My publisher, she said, you know, I need you to find someone to corroborate your story because the claims you're making are like, oh, my God. So I said, I don't have anybody. She's like, well, you're going to have to figure something out. Regina hadn't heard from her biological family for more than 25 years. She didn't have much documentation. She didn't even have a photo of herself as a kid to use for the book cover. Having no background, you, you did not have any photos. Nothing. No doodles, no stories about nothing. you as a kid. No, nothing. I, I think then I realized, oh my God, there's no archiving, there's no proof. When you grow up without a family, like Regina did, the things you forget about yourself, about your life, they're gone. And the things you do remember, you end up doubting. Regina spent a lot of time doubting her memory, but having someone else doubt it felt worse. I'm not even registered in this thing. It's like, I'm, I'm nobody. So Regina set out to find the one person who could corroborate her story and her life. I'm Noah Rosenberg, and this is Believable from Narratively. It's a show about how our stories define who we are. Today, the story of a child's journey through foster care and a woman's struggle to corroborate her own life. We walk into this one-level building, stainless steel door. You walk in. A man sits at a desk, and the intake procedure begins. On May 2nd, 1976, Regina Louise was brought to the Edgar Children's Shelter in Martinez, California. She arrived in the custody of police. She had bruises and scars. She was 12 years old. The intake guy, Mr. Porter, is, I see you have an injury. And I see a police report with the outline drawing, and I see X's. I didn't put two to two together that as he goes down this body with the X's, those injuries are mine. I don't recognize that. 
and I just lie and say, you know, I fell, you know. They asked me about my mother, my father, same questions. I didn't want to talk about any of those people. They were gone. They didn't want me. There was no need to go over that. As far as I was concerned, I was just dropped from the sky. At the shelter, Regina lived in a room with eight other girls. There were bunk beds and shatterproof windows. And for the most part, Regina kept to herself. But there was another side of her. I could bring an environment from stable to completely dysfunctional within seconds. If I didn't get what I wanted, I threw a tornado meets a volcano kind of a temper tantrum. What did that tantrum sound like? Ooh, see, you better be careful what you ask for. <laughs> no. I plug my ears. No, no, no. I would just be like punching, kicking, scratching, spitting, hollering. Sometimes I got restrained. And a lot of times I did it to be restrained, just to feel... Human contact. Human contact. Some of the social workers saw Regina's tantrums as a sign of mental illness. And at first, no one seemed to be able to reach her. And then one morning, Regina woke up. There's this beautiful white woman, root beer-colored hair. She raises a blind. She walks around the room. She shakes all the girls' toes and... You know, she's just different, right? Annoyingly different. And she comes over to me, and she's like, good morning, Punkin. I'm like, my name ain't Punkin. She said, I know, your name is not Punkin. Your name is Regina. She was very quiet and secretive. She didn't share very much. This is Jean Kerr, the counselor Regina is talking about. If she was um, deciding to act out, she would lash out with vigor. If she was quiet, she was the quietest one. <laughs> there was something about the way she made the effort to lower herself to my level. And then she also sees the marks and she asks, what, what, what happened? And I, I just can't go back there, you know? And she knew to leave it alone. Regina didn't trust anyone, but slowly, she started to trust Jean. They had a connection right away. The other kids at the center had family or friends in the area, so they could leave for visits on the weekends. But Regina didn't have anyone. She was the only one there. So we had an opportunity to get to know each other very well. We would go and do fun things. Like, I did things I had never done before, like go to ice cream parlors. Are you kidding me? We would crochet. She would do my hair. She would teach me how to braid hair. She taught me how to swim. We would go on outings to swimming. We would go on outings to horseback riding. Movies. I'd never gone to a movie. The more I experienced regular kid, girl things, the more I blossomed and the more the trust between she and I developed. At one point, she basically took me to her house accidentally to maybe pick up something. And you didn't do that kind of stuff with me because once you took me, I knew how to get back to you. I just counted street lights. You know what I'm saying? So I knew, oh, 102 street lights, boom, 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 boom. Or, oh, 36 street lights, oh, boom, 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 turn left, right, boom, boom, boom. And you were consciously counting as you were driving toward her house, thinking, okay, I want to be able to get back to this woman. Oh, heck yeah. I would run away and spend the night at Jean's house. 
right when I would hear her turn the keys over to the graveyard staff, I'm out of the bed, my shoes, I'm ready, I'm at the fence, I'm jumping over, and I'm on my way to her house. The Edgar Children's Shelter was supposed to be a temporary solution, a home for kids until they could be placed in longer-term foster care. Regina ended up in homes all around the area, but she never stayed long. I was put in 30 different placements, and I ran away from each one of them trying to get back to her. Sometimes, Regina didn't have to run away from her placement to see Jean. Of course, you know, I would book a hotel near the place that she was staying so I could be there for their visiting hours. When something went wrong at a placement, Regina would call the shelter, asking for Jean. And the other social workers started to catch on. And I think that was problematic. I had failed so many homes that they were concerned. In 1978, Regina was scheduled to have a custody hearing. She was a proven flight risk with a history of erratic behavior. Her social worker, Gwen, planned to recommend that Regina be moved to a psychiatric treatment center. Regina didn't know it at the time, but Jean was working hard to keep that from happening. I wrote a letter to the social worker. I had never um, wanted to be anybody else's mother there, but I really felt that I could help Regina, that I wanted her to have a family. I wanted her to be my daughter. But the social worker, Gwen, shut that idea down. The social worker felt that I was a bad influence on Regina and I should not be fraternizing with her. Gwen thought Jean had overstepped, that her relationship with Regina was inappropriate. But there was another problem. She said Regina needed to be in a black family, and I wasn't black. At that time, African-American social workers were fighting to preserve the African-American family, and they were losing that fight. In the late 60s and early 70s, adoptions were dropping dramatically. The legalization of abortion and the invention of birth control resulted in fewer white children being put up for adoption. White couples were becoming open to the idea of adopting across racial lines. And between 1968 and 1972, transracial adoptions became more common. But not everyone thought that was a good thing. I'm Tony Brown. In a moment, can whites raise black children? In 1972, the National Association for Black Social Workers, or NABSW, announced that it was against transracial adoption. And the organization's president, Jay Chun, wasn't wavering. Here he is in an interview on a TV show called Tony Brown's Journal. Now, are you saying that white people cannot and should not raise black children? We certainly are. We don't feel that white families have the sensitivity to black life, black lifestyles, black culture, and the way black children grow, learn, think, and behave to be able to successfully raise them. The NABSW was adamant. Their president argued that a black child was better off in an institution than in a white home. And that stance had a big impact on transracial adoption. By the end of 1972, white adoptions of black children decreased almost 40%. And in 1978, when Regina went to her custody hearing, it was still a big issue. To watch a black girl go into a white home, it was the politics of race. In court, 
Regina's social worker argued that Regina needed to be with a black family. But she also said that Regina wasn't stable enough for a family setting yet. She recommended Regina be placed in a treatment facility. When Regina had a chance to speak, she told the judge that she wanted to live with Jean. To Regina, it felt like the whole world had decided who she was and who she was going to be. My social worker would say things like, you're not going to be anybody. When she said that sort of stuff, my insides were like, you're lying. Whereas Jean is telling me, this is your life. This is the world you can pick and choose. I wanted someone who could mirror to me the unconditional possibility that I could become anything and be proud of who I was as a black woman, but not allow my blackness to limit my possibility. In the end, the judge sided with the social worker. Um, I got word before Regina returned. I just sat down on the floor and I was crying, sobbing. I'm in the dining room of the Edgar Children's Shelter, and I look to the right, and there Jean is on the floor. And she saw me there, and, um... And I get down on my knees. She didn't know that I'd written a petition to be her mom, and, um, I think I shared with her that, you know, I tried. I was very sad. I said... You know what? Just knowing somebody wanted me. Somebody was willing to make me someone. Thank you. After the break, Regina continues on in a world without Jean. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. After the court's decision, Regina was taken away from the Children's Center, away from Jean. She was brought to a treatment facility where the rules were different. Regina was heavily medicated, and because of her behavior, she spent a lot of time in isolation. I was in solitary confinement most of the time. So I was in, literally, a locked room. And I think that was probably the most devastating to make matters worse, she wasn't hearing from Jean. Where are the letters? Why isn't she communicating with me? But Jean was calling. She was writing letters. I didn't know why Regina didn't respond to my, my mail. Legally, I had no right to be present in her life since I didn't have the privilege of being her parent. Regina wasn't allowed to talk on the phone. They never gave her Jean's letters, and Regina thought that Jean had just abandoned her, like everybody else. Regina stayed at the treatment center for two months, and then she was placed in a group home outside San Francisco. And I think at that point, my anger became a form of resistance. She started running away again, 
She went to job interviews, auditioned for plays, tried modeling. And I just said, when I'm out of here, I have to live this life because it's in me. When Regina was 19, she aged out of the foster care system, but she was far from a fully developed adult. The only model she had for how to live, for how to succeed, was the short time she'd spent with Jean. That became my MO, was to grow myself up the way I imagined she would have. So I basically took over the parenting of myself. Regina spent a lot of time in the library, reading every book she could find. She worked a paper out to get by, stealing a few subscription dollars when she was desperate. She finished high school and got into college. And as she struggled to lift herself up, she looked for Jean. And when Regina was 20 years old, her search paid off. She tracked down Jean's mother, and then she invited Jean to dinner. I think my hope was she lost the right to be there for me then. Maybe, you know, here we are, two people without anyone saying yes or no. You know, maybe there's a chance. Because I hadn't seen or heard from her since then, I thought it was like, well... You know, I thought I'd reach out to an old counselor and just say hi and let you know I was doing well. But things between them were different, and both Regina and Jean could feel that. She was just very avoidant at the dinner and very blank and very checked out. And I didn't have the courage or the know-how to just come out and say, do you want me? Can You know, I would have never done that. I was way too frightened. You know how you when someone's in that, thousand miles stare and you take your hand and you were to wave it in front of them and they don't even blink. It was more like that. Walking down the stairs from leaving in my heart the bond was there but the feelings were not present. Even though she'd invited me the feelings were different and um, the warmth wasn't there. Once again, Jean and Regina went their separate ways. There was no insurmountable obstacle. No one was standing in their way. And that made it all the more difficult to swallow. In fact, Regina didn't remember the dinner with Jean until we reminded her of it. She had blocked it out. That's a really interesting experience that I'm actually having right now. Just complete disorientation. You know, there's a trauma that goes with that. And within that will go memories and the way we see it and the way we remember it. It's just too bone crushing to believe that that actually happened. It wasn't easy, but Regina moved on, on her own. She dropped out of college. She says it was too sad around Christmas break. All the other students went home to their families and she was left alone. After a while, she became a hairdresser, and she was determined to be the best she could be, saving until she was able to open up her own salon, and then another. The girl who had only wanted a family became a self-made woman. Anger can be an incredible form of resistance, and I wanted to resist what I was going to be, which was nothing. Regina had a son, and she was determined to give him everything she never had to raise him how she'd always hoped Jean would raise her. And every once in a while over the years, Regina went looking for Jean, but her memory wasn't helping her. I tried to remember where her mother lived, and I would drive, but I couldn't. I couldn't access that. I think there was some trauma at that point that had 
almost like pinned me down. And Jean looked for Regina too. I tried to reach her several times and the people who answered the phone said that she wasn't at that phone number. Do you think you were findable? Oh, I made sure I was. I always put my name in the phone book as Regina Louise in case anybody from my life wanted to look for me. I never wanted to give them an excuse. Although they tried, Jean and Regina couldn't find each other. And after a while, they both stopped looking. Almost 20 years went by. Regina was approaching 40. And one day, she started to write in the margins of a newspaper. Not to disturb the raggedy screen door that barely kept the man eating mosquitoes from tearing our asses up. It was a scene from her childhood, growing up in a trailer outside of Austin, Texas. I linked my body into the frame and stared up at the sky. I could tell by the way the clouds moved that God was going to start crying soon. At first, writing was a way to go back, to explore all the memories she had lost. And I kept writing. And then, but just this part of me, this, this horrific fear, this just, it started falling off. In writing sessions, dull memories would come back to her. Regina called them pockets of grief. But she sometimes doubted these memories. Many were dark and dreamlike. They didn't seem connected to anything. And Regina didn't fully trust her memories of Jean either. Had this woman really loved her? And if she had loved her once, why did she disappear? With the help of a writing coach, Regina wrote a memoir. But then her publisher needed proof of her life. That was sobering. I don't even own my own experience to some degree. She's asking me to prove not just that this happened, but I need somebody to say this happened and a photo. So Regina set out to find Jean again. She started on the phone. And I would just spend time calling, hello, hello. I have phone bills, dude. Crazy shit. She looked up addresses and knocked on doors in places Jean used to live. And she no, wasn't there nobody, anymore. Nobody, you know, nobody knew. No, you know, they're, they're not going to give out the information. It wasn't until she got a list of Jean Kerr's from her friend, a reporter, that Regina picked up Jean's trail. She had been at a military base in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and all these various military bases. But eventually, Regina ran out of numbers to call. In a last-ditch effort, she sent a letter to an address that seemed promising. It came back, returned to sender. Regina published her memoir, Somebody, Someone, in 2003. Without corroboration, she had to change all the names in the book. She went on a book tour, and during an interview, somebody asked her, What do you want? You have it all. Your son is well-adjusted. Your book is fast becoming a bestseller. You're, you know, a business owner. What do you want? Is there someone to tell me they're proud of me? I've never had that. Later that night, when Regina got back to her hotel, she checked her email, and a message caught her eye. I'm so proud of you, sweetheart. That's the subject line. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And I open it up, and it says, hi, sweetheart. Holly got a hold of me. She said, you're looking for me. And I just want you to know, I'm not lost. There was a telephone number from Alabama. I'm like, oh, my God. Well, I was asleep, and the phone rang, and I answered it, and 
And I said, hello, may I speak to Jinka? And I, oh my God, it was, you know, I knew it was Regina. I said, it's just my baby girl. You know, it was just really tingly, exciting. I'm like, oh my God, this is real. And I wasn't sure how to work with it. And I was afraid I, you know, my heart. She didn't know that I wanted her. So she felt abandoned. In my heart, she was my daughter millions of years ago. I said I wanted to give her what was I felt was her birthright to make it official to have her be my daughter. She goes, I'll call you right back. <laughs> I was just like, what the hell? I'm scared. I don't know what to do. I recognize the, the, the enormity of it. Moments later, she called back and she wanted to give me a gift that she hadn't given anyone else. She wanted to call me mommy. Regina was going to be in New York as part of her book tour, and Jean made plans to fly in and meet her at the airport. Finally, she lands. She calls me, sweetheart, I'm coming. I see this woman coming down the jetway. There was this beautiful, very well put together woman. Her hair is long and gray, and it's swinging in the back of a baseball cap. And I'm like, okay, that ain't her. I was wearing something that I thought was very special. <laughs> and her capri pants. Nobody wears capri pants. They were chartreuse green with little white polka dots on them. And I see this hot mess coming towards me, and I'm looking for Jean, and all of a sudden I hear, sweetheart! And I'm like, Hails to the gnaw. I can't believe it. And she's, sweetie, I can't believe she's touching me. I can't believe it's you. Look at you. You're so grown up. You know, she was, she looked very different. And I'm sure I looked very different than when, you know, we had seen each other before. So there's a familiarity, a deep familiarity, but just a difference. They get into a cab to go back to Regina's hotel. And we get to the hotel room, and she goes into the restroom. She's like, I'm going to leave the door open. I just want to make sure you're there when I come out. We had been separated for so long, and it was just like, this is a precious, precious gift, which means, oh, my God, I don't want to lose it again. Jean had made Regina a gift, a photo album. I opened this book. Every home I ever lived in, she had taken pictures. I didn't even know. There were pictures of Regina with her father and pictures of Regina sitting with Jean's mother at the dinner table. It was proof of a forgotten life. There's me holding a Tony the Tiger. I closed it because I can't. Because that girl had to die in order for that woman to be sitting there right then. Regina canceled the rest of her book tour to spend time with Jean. And after so much time apart, the two were inseparable. We were tracking, like, mother and newborn, in a way. If she was out of my sight, 
or if I was out of her sight, it was like kind of like a little panic. Oh my God. I wanted to do everything I could to be with Regina, to do anything I could for her. More than 25 years after they were separated, when Regina was 41 years old, she and Jean stood together in front of a judge in the Contra Costa County Courthouse. It was the same exact courtroom where a judge had denied the adoption in the first place. What did that feel like that day in court? Woo! Otherworldly, but beautiful. You raise your hand and you swear, you solemnly swear to love and abide and cherish and all those beautiful things. Afterwards, Jean and I took a walk on the beach in San Francisco. There was this song that I used to love, and I sang a little bit of that for her, and basically. Can you sing some for us? <laughs> well, it's basically, I want to thank you for your generosity, and so on. I just want to thank you. And I said that to her, and we cried. <laughs> Regina had dreamt of having a family her whole life. She dreamt of warm meals around the dinner table, of safety and comfy beds. She dreamt of the uncomplicated version, the Norman Rockwell painting. To wish for something and wish and wish and wish and wish and to have that very thing actually happen, that doesn't land as easily as you think it will. In the fairy tale version, Regina is accepted into the family immediately. But when she first arrived in Alabama to meet everyone, Regina could tell it wasn't going to be that simple. Her husband went into straight-up sibling rivalry with me. She gave me a lot of her attention, and he was not comfortable with that in any way, shape, or form. It really impacted him. There was no way to make up time, but I wanted to do anything and everything with her or for her. Jean says that getting Regina back changed everything. For a while, she felt like she was in shock. This reunification reconfigured every molecule in my body. Um, so I wasn't the same person that he married. Instead of being taken in by the family, Regina played the role of peacemaker. How can we become friends, family? What, what, what's possible here? But in reality, it was really hard. Them. A few years after Regina was adopted into the family, Jean and her husband filed for divorce. I mean, I hate to ask, but do you think this new relationship in some way contributed to the dissolution of your marriage? It, it was a factor in it, yeah. Despite the rocky start, most of Jean's family has warmed up to Regina. They get together around the holidays, and although there's still some awkwardness and tension, there are Norman Rockwell moments, too. Uh, Christmas Day, we go to Aunt Joan's, and we have this tradition of having grapefruit with sugar on the top. We all kind of like eat and look at each other and go, thank God it's not fruitcake. And then we open gifts, and it's that, that feeling. It's that Christmas you never had. It's that Christmas I never had. Regina had finally found her family, but in her relationship with Jean, she had to establish some ground rules. You are my mom. I see you as that, but there are boundaries that you can't really tell me to reconsider my cleavage 
this is my body. This is this is I. No one's ever told me that. Is that something she said to you? Are you kidding me? I feel it would be remiss of me not to share. Like if her if her dress would be plunging, you know, I have mentioned. Sweetheart, are you sure that is the image you would like to project? It's like, girl, you know, and then me, you know, how much do I want to perform the daughter and then performing authentic autonomy? Those lines can bleed a little bit. If this sounds a little bit like a mother and teenage daughter relationship, that's because it was kind of like that. When they first reunited, Regina says that it was like living a childhood she had never gotten to live. I let my guard down and I let Jean in and... It was sweet and fun to allow her to parent me, if you will. But after a while, Regina grew up in her relationship with Jean, and she wanted to strike out on her own. Once I left the the closeness of our relationship, that was the ultimate individuation, not so unlike a 20-year-old or 25-year-old leaving their parents' home. Regina went back and finished college, and then grad school. At both graduations, Jean was there in the audience with tears in her eyes. It's always bittersweet to see your child grow up and become their own person. This was no different, just a little bit late. How can you put so many feelings into just a few words? I mean, I mean, you could fill books. She is her own unique self. She may have taken seeds from things that she saw me do or things that we did together, but she is her own unique person. And I'm very fortunate to be her mother and to share this life with her. So we go to Disney World. I have a big speaking event in Orlando, Florida, and I set it up that my mom would come along. In Disney World, and I kind of have a temper tantrum. I'm not kidding because I realize I want princess dresses like all the little girls, and I was a full blown adult. She literally took me into the store and helped me try on princess dresses because they have them up for big girls to let me have that experience and to, and to see that and to let that just be. Like I wasn't wrong, I wasn't pathologized. I think it was at that moment that I realized what's done is done. The best we can do is create memories from this point and allow those memories to bind us, to be the mortar that takes us through the rest of this relationship. The greatest need that I believe we all have is to be seen. Just having that witness has been everything for me. Regina Louise is an author and speaker who lives in Walnut Creek, California, not far from her mother, Jean Kerr. She's written two memoirs, Somebody, Someone, and Someone Has Led This Child to Believe. Her essay for Narratively, I Was Adopted When I Was 41, was edited by Lily Danziger. This story was produced by Ryan Swikert with help from Emily Rostack and me, Noah Rosenberg. Ryan handled the mix and sound design, fact-checking is by Rob Williams, and our beautiful episode art is by Zoe Van Dyke. Additional support from Ula Kulpa, 
Minority co-founder Brendan Spiegel, Rachel Ishikawa, Jeremy Dalmas, and Lisa Charlotte. Special thanks to the NYU School of Journalism and the Made in New York Media Center. This is the first episode of Believable, and we really hope you enjoyed it. The show has been a labor of love for us, and we're just getting started. Support and word of mouth are huge. Tell your friends about us and leave us a comment on iTunes. That helps a lot. Next week on Believable. A pregnant woman has visions of her own death, and no one believes her, not even her husband. She had dreadful concerns. This is not good. This is exactly what I was worried about. And then the unthinkable happens. She somehow had a sense that this was going to happen. As of right now, there is no scientific explanation for it. That's next week on Believable. Thank you so much for listening. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.